photos can be taken in the igloo for $5 each. Uh, you can <laughs> no, it is really cool. I mean, you see all those milk jugs laying around, and then you go up and see the, uh, see the, uh, the igloo and say, oh, man, that's what they were doing. Okay, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. They were in Psalm 119, verses 113 to 120. And as you can tell, there were a lot of things going on today. Um, so we've really compacted this. This psalm could probably be, well, I don't know, six sermons in, in each. Almost every psalm, almost every section of Psalm 119 could be that. But, you know. I would like it. I think everybody else would eventually go, again, we're in Psalm 119 again. Uh, but it is so rich throughout here. This is, this is God's word. It is here for us. And, and David, as the psalmist, is wrestling with so many of the same things that we wrestle with in our daily lives. Okay, That's why it is so important for us. So if you're able, please stand with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes. Uh, we don't want to just read the words on the page. We want to read your word. We want it to enliven our hearts. We want it to dwell richly within us that we might live it out in our actions, in our words, in our attitudes, in all that we are. Uh, fill us today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 113 to 120. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love the law. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I wait for thy word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to thy word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for the statutes continually. Thou hast rejected all those who wander from thy statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. Thou hast removed all the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, in the past few sections, part of what we are look, have been looking at is the path that is to be walked by believers and how we are to be informed by and filled with the Word of God in all that we do. In fact, it, it tells us very clearly the Word of God is to be our joy, and that is not a hyperbolic statement. That is not just over the top, well, well okay, that's something to uh, target, but I'm never going to achieve. No, no, that's, that's reality. That is reality. It is the Word of God, how we are to find joy in it, how we are to find joy in obedience to the Word, how we are to appreciate it. And see, that's really Christianity. That's why we are different. Christians are different than the rest of the world around us. We live differently. We love differently. We give differently. We think differently. It goes on and on and on. Our thoughts, our love, our giving, our lives, our attitudes are all shaped by the word, and there is great joy in doing that. 
This is not a burdensome obligation to us. If we understand the work of Christ, if we understand his grace in our lives, these things are joyful to us. So to achieve this different way of living, we have to walk, as Scripture says, in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now Spurgeon, uh, in, in his great wisdom, said, The true description of a believing man's life is that he walks in his uprightness. You know what is meant by an upright man, a man who does not lean this way or that, who is not inclined to do that which is wrong. A Christian man is a pilgrim. He makes progress in his march to glory so long as he walks uprightly. But will he keep his uprightness by his own power? Spurgeon says no. Not unless he is upheld by the Lord because his way is slippery. Okay? The world's way is slippery. The Christian way, uh, it doesn't take much. I mean, uh, we probably can all attest to this. It doesn't take much to go sliding off the path. It doesn't take much more than an instant of our eyes focused on something else to lose our way and to, to stumble. So if we're going to walk in a manner uh, the Lord wants us to walk in, we have to resolve to put aside those things which hinder our walk. Those things which, which grab a hold of us and, and want to drag us off the path of the Lord. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Isaiah says to walk upright. John says, walk in the light. The prophet Micah says, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we all contend with things that weigh us down. Things that latch on to us, things that pull us away from the Lord, uh, weigh us down in our striving, and it's very clear we have to get rid of these things. These things hinder us, and the Hebrews is clear, get rid of all those things that hinder us. And what our psalmist is saying today is first and foremost, we have to get rid of the sin of idolatry. And you go, well, Rand, I don't have a problem with idolatry. I mean, I don't, I don't have a little shrine in my house with little figures, and, and every day I go, you know, bow down and worship them. Um, well, that was kind of the Old Testament, okay? There are plenty of idols today. There are plenty of opportunities for idol worship today. Idolatry rears its ugly head in our world when we find our deepest satisfaction in someone, something, or anything other than God. When we find our deepest satisfaction, not just satisfaction, but deepest satisfaction, when the longing of our heart, when we think it is satisfied by something other than our Heavenly Father, that's idolatry. You think, oh, I love my children so much. Do you love them more than the Lord? Well, careful, careful. You've got to love him first. You've got to love him most. Your deepest satisfaction must be in him. And the psalmist is in the midst of a battle of idolatry. And, and you think, oh, no, no, David never had that problem. Well, apparently he did. Apparently he did. People around him had that. You know, uh, there, there was that time where, um, you know, kings go off to war in the spring and David stayed home and he found his deepest satisfaction not in the Lord but in the woman down there taking a bath. 
Okay, so everybody struggles with that. So the first thing we find says, I hate the double-minded. I hate the double-minded. Now that phrase, double-minded, is a term for religious ambivalence uh, or maybe divided loyalty. I don't care. Yeah, I'm good here. I'm good there. It's kind of up in the air. Or those who know about God but are not fully determined to find their satisfaction in God. They know about those things. I've heard about him. I've been to church. Yeah, I've said the creed and on and on and on. But their satisfaction is found in things in the world. Those are the double-minded people. And the psalmist says, I hate them. Now, that's a strong word in the Hebrew, but it's, a, it's an appropriate word. I hate the double-minded. He's clear he's run into people who have done that. Who, who, who you know, what's the, uh, the theater thing, the two faces? Um, Comedy and tragedy, because in the old Greek, uh, you didn't change characters, you just changed, you know, faces. So you could be the hero one minute with a face and then look over here and go be the villain, right? Uh, well, he said that's double-mindedness. You know, you have to be of one mind. You have to pursue one thing, have one priority. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament that call us to stay away from being double-minded and that there are penalties in life for double-minded. Verse Kings 18, Elijah he confronts the prophets of Baal. You remember that on Mount Carmel. It's this is his big moment. And Elijah prepares to defeat the prophets. He says to the people, he says to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Between this one or that one. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the, and the Lord showed who was God by consuming the offering that Elijah offered on the mountain. Joshua is what we've read earlier in chapter 24. It says, choose this day whom you will serve. It's either going to be the gods of this land or it's going to be God. And they had not been in that land of the Amorites very long. And it was just like, wow. You know, the Amorites seem to be having a lot of fun in their worship. And, and we're just not having as much fun. And look what they get to do. And all we have to do is what God tells us to do. And that's just not enjoyable. So they began to Worship the gods of the Amorites. And Joshua says, enough of this. You know the power of the Lord. You know what he calls you to do. Worship him or worship them. I'm going to worship him. And he lays it out. Choose this day whom you will worship. But me and my house is going to be the Lord. In the New Testament, James warns about the double-mindedness twice. In chapter 1 and in chapter 4. He says in chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed about like the winds. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded. He says, ah, I like the Lord today, but not so much tomorrow. Again in chapter 4, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse you ha your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is, is written, written to believers. These are believers who are struggling with two minds. Do I want to serve God or do I, do I want to serve the gods of this world? And they're struggling back and forth. <clears throat> James knows the double-mindedness is a sin that believers face and a sin that believers struggle with at different times in our lives because it's a battle here in our heart, a battle of our desires. 
And the world is very good at putting before us things that we desire because it looks good. And we're going to see that in just a moment in verse 114. But if you begin in your heart and in your thoughts and in your desires, if they are taken over to things which are, we'll just say, carnal, or to, to make you proud, or to pull you away from the Lord, that's a warning sign. That's a warning sign that you're beginning to become idolatrous and double-minded. And, this, and you know, you have to understand, even Paul wrestled with this. And we say, even Paul, if we had to pick a Christian... Paul's usually the best we can find. But he said what? Why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I know I should do? That's never happened to us. I know. know. Not today very much. The psalmist wants his thoughts. He wants his priorities. He wants his worldview all shaped by by the word of God, not by sin. Not by the world around him. And then he says in the next verse, 114, You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. The psalmist is telling us that in this battle, God himself is our shield. God himself is our hope. Now, how does idolatry work? Idolatry works with a lie. I mean, Satan is a liar. That's that's his first thing. Whenever you think about Satan, he is best at lying. Idolatry is the same thing. It works with a lie. It promises you something it cannot deliver. It has no means. An idol has no means to deliver what our hearts long for. Now, idolatry works this way. It promises that there is a place where you can find safety, you can find security, you can find joy, you can find peace, you can find satisfaction someplace other than the Lord. And you can find joy, and you can find peace, and you can find satisfaction temporarily in these things. Temporarily. And sometimes it is only for a moment. And other times we go on and life is good because we think we've got it made, but that is not an eternal joy. That is not an eternal peace. That is not an eternal security or satisfaction. It is a temporal satisfaction that the idols of this world offer. And that offer is made contrary to what God says is true and what he promises. Think about Adam and Eve. Okay, It goes all the way back to there where they said, well, the Lord has made a promise, but I think I'd rather do this. David, as I mentioned, everybody goes off to war except the king. He says, do I want my satisfaction in the Lord or in that woman down there taking a bath? And we know where that went. And Peter, am I going to be satisfied in the Lord? Am I going to find my security in the Lord? Except for those three times when he said, I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. Because he felt threatened by the world. Idolatry is fought at the level of our desires. At the desires of our heart. What does your heart desire? That's where idolatry is going to get you. That's where it's going to get you. Think of the person who says that I'm lonely. You know, think of the person who, who reaches a point in their loneliness where they're willing to do what God said not to do in order to satisfy this longing in their heart, this loneliness. They involve themselves in actions, relationships, forms of thought that are contrary to the word of God. They're saying, 
Lord, you can't be my shield. You can't be my hope. You can't be my strength. You can't be all those things that you promised because right now I'm not sensing that, so I'm going to go and pursue the things of the world and make them my idol and forget you. It's important for us to understand what David is saying. God himself is our shelter. God himself is our shield and our hope. He is the only place of safety in this world. When we begin to look to anything else, it becomes idolatry. Number three, look at verse 115. He says, depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. He's telling us that when we join with idolaters, we're working to our own ruin. We're working to our own ruin. Uh, Now, what type of company is he talking about here? I think we can get an explanation from what Paul says, that little verse in Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. Now, so often we have assumed that that applies only to marriage. Believers do not marry a non-believer. But it really applies to any intimate relationship where you are tying yourself to another. Okay, now I realize in the business world you might be a believer and you have to make contracts with non-believers and that you have contracts which secure certain things. But in our intimate relationships, in our closest of, of, of relationships, we are not to be yoked with unbelievers. We are not to be tied with unbelievers. Why not? Because we're not going in the same direction. Okay? Think of a marriage. One comes down that aisle. One comes through the secret door. That's over there. Now, it's not so secret now. Um, but where do they go? They both go in this direction going out. I mean, it's, it's just a, a, a simple thing, but it is symbolic. Okay, they come from two places, yet as believers, they will walk together. Do two men walk together unless by agreement, the prophet says? You walk where the Lord is going. You are married to a believer. You associate in your closest relationships with believers because... If you understand the picture of a yoke, it's two oxen, and if they are unequally yoked, you've got a 1,000-pound ox and a 700-pound ox. And the 1,000-pound ox is just a, a monster muscular and everything, and the 700-pound is fat and lazy. Well, how's, how's your, how are your rows going to be? Your rows are going to be all crooked. Because one's going to pull this way because he's stronger. It will not be straight. That's what happens when we become associated in those close relationships with non-believers. He says you have to fight against this. I, I know this sounds obvious, right? Okay. If if my priority and this person's priorities are different, how can we be associated to achieve the same priority? We cannot. We cannot. The place of companionship, the place of deep relationships is with people who love the Lord, who are loyal to the Lord, who have the same priorities, the same desires. He's not saying don't hang out with sinners, don't hang out with non-believers. Of course you, you do. That's what we're called to do. But in your deepest relationships, they need to be going in the same direction. Number four, 116 and 117. Sustain me according to thy word that I may live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for thy statutes continually. It's God. It's his promise. It's his word. That's the hope of the believer. It's the strength that we have. The greatest weapon we have against fighting against idolatry is God himself. The weakest weapon is my will. 
God is always faithful. He's always strong. He's always there. Randy, frankly, not so much. Okay? I can be blown about by every wind and wave, as James says not to be. I can seek out the things of the world in a temporary fashion because, you know what, they're just easier. I can feel some sort of satisfaction right now. And God says, if you trust in me, if you put your hope in me, if you let me be your shield and your protector, you will sense that too. Yeah, but Lord, I want it one. I want it right now. So I seek the things of the world. The Lord says, delight in me. Treasure me. Commune with me. Fill your mind and your heart with my word. You will find your satisfaction. My promises will come to fulfillment in your word. That's why it is so important that in our private devotions, we dig and feast on the word. We pray. We study. We read. We meditate. And then on a regular basis, we gather as a body to worship. And when we worship, we dig into the word. My, you know, my greatest fear is it's, that you'll go home one day and go, you know, I could have got that stuff out of my study Bible. No, no. when you come here, you should get more than that. When you come here, there, there should be a, you know, some of it may go past you because you're just not there. And other people are like, couldn't we go for 40 more minutes? No. Now, believe it or not, I've had people say that on the way out. I, what? You stopped so early. You could have kept going. I'm like, oh. Uphold me according to the promise of your word. Number five, 118, 119. Thou hast rejected all those who wander from thy statutes. Their deceitfulness is useless. Thou hast removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. I love your testimonies. David is meditating upon God. He's meditating upon the judgment that God justly exercises to those who disobey, to those who are not him, his who rebel against him. Now, why is it that this doesn't make us afraid? Why is it that the consequences of sin are not enough to deter us from involving ourselves in sin. Okay? Uh, uh, you, you know my example. I'm driving down 565 and I'm speeding. Not this morning. I had the cruise control on, but I wasn't speeding this morning. But why does not the threat that there's a police officer under the bridge waiting for Randy deter me from speeding? He won't be there today. Okay? And that extra two minutes that I save, that's worth everything to me, right? Or, or, or the consequences will not be that bad until I see the $180 ticket. And then I'm like, oh, maybe they are bad. Maybe they are bad. See, the problem is we don't think we'll ever get caught. Now, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but this is so often. We don't think we'll ever get caught. And secondly, if we do, the consequences won't be as bad as they think. It just won't be as bad. Okay, really, would you... Would you commit a crime, a felony, something really bad, if you actually thought you'd go to prison? I'm smarter than the police, right? They'll never catch me. They'll never catch me. You know what? I'm so good with my taxes, the IRS will never know how I've swindled them. 
They will. I mean, that's what they do all day long is they look for people who think they are smarter than them. Okay, But we don't think we'll face the consequences of our sin. And idolatry is part of that. We think, oh, no, they'll just never get me. They'll never get me. We're too clever to face those bad things associated with our sin. Unfortunately, the Bible is full of of simply a myriad of examples of people who thought they would never get caught or people who thought they could go and worship an idol for a little bit and bear no consequence. And again and again and again. I mean, think of the Old Testament and the people of God. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And and the prophet said to the northern kingdom, you better get your stuff, stuff together and follow the Lord or you're going to be wiped out. And they said, no, no, no. We're going to worship idols. And what happened? The Assyrians came, 722, wiped them out. And the southern kingdom, Judah you would have thought would have been looking at the northern kingdom and going to go, you know, we better get our stuff together because the Lord may come and wipe us out too. And, and what did they do? No, 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 we're doing fine. And the Babylonians came and wiped them out, 586. One last thing. And again, you're just, you're, you're just getting, there's so much more here to, to, to dig into. You're just getting the, the surface stuff, but the last one. My flesh trembles for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. The correct fear of the Lord is protection against idolatry. Do we fear the Lord? Well, but God is a God of love, right? But what does he do to sin? Throughout history, what has he done to sin? He has crushed it. He has judged it in a righteous judgment. Think of Deuteronomy 10. O Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and to keep his commandments. Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord are not at opposite ends. They go together. Fear of the Lord is the way of piety in the Old Testament. You want to find someone who is lives a pious life in the Old Testament, they fear the Lord. And we have to look at our, our lives. Do I fear the Lord? Do I have a fear of God's judgment? Because he will bring judgment upon sin. There was a missionary to India and Persia, Henry Martin. He was a great missionary. He died young, died on the field. And he recorded this in his journal. He said, in prayer this evening... I had such a near and terrific view of God's judgment upon sinners in hell that my flesh trembled for fear of them, and I flew trembling to Jesus Christ as if a flame were taking hold of me. O Christ, save me or I perish. I I tell you, I've never experienced that fear in my personal devotions. I've never... I could have never written that. And I see that. And Martin was devoted to the Lord. He was so devoted to the Lord that when he left England, he broke an engagement to a beautiful woman and said, I've got to serve the Lord. And he went to India to do so. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The right fear of the Lord is the ultimate protection for our hearts against idolatry. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the fear that we have of you is an awe. 
Yes, we are afraid of your judgments, but we know from your promises that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are protected from the ultimate judgment. Yes, in our disobedience, we, we have to face that there are consequences to that. And the consequences of sin are real. The consequences of sin cannot be put aside or laughed off or thought we'll never face them. We will face the consequences of our own poor decisions and even the decisions of others and even the sinfulness of others. But yet, that does not diminish your love for us, does not diminish your protection as we rest in your hand and can never be taken from your possession. Lord, as, as we have looked at your word, we have seen that there are many things in this world to draw our hearts away from you. Perhaps some here today are stuck in idolatry and they didn't even know what it was. But now that they see that they're seeking satisfaction of their hearts someplace other than in you, Lord, come upon them today. Come upon each of us that we might examine our hearts Focus our minds and our hearts and attention on you. Cleanse us of those other things in our lives that make us mindful of them, Lord, that that we might turn away from them and, and move towards you and that we would know that you alone offer our heart's desire. Nothing compares to you. Lord, move in our hearts. Open our eyes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.